Welcome to the Psych Central Podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. And today I will be talking with Pauline Dakin, who is the best-selling author of Run, Hide, Repeat, a memoir of a fugitive childhood, which tells the true story of her mother's misguided belief that their family was in constant danger. Her book also won the prestigious Edna Stabler Award for Creative Nonfiction last year. Pauline, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Well, it's 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 an amazing story. I, normally, I, I I say hello, thank you for being here. It's wonderful, and we make pleasantries. But but I I want to jump in. I became aware of you by reading, I, I believe, a New York Times article on your book. And I just, I absolutely had to know more. First off, can you tell us just maybe like a brief synopsis of what the book is about, and then we'll get into the details. Okay. Well, my brother and I grew up with some very strange things happening. Twice my family disappeared. So it was me, my mom, and my brother. And twice we uh, moved away without telling anybody and started a new life. And of course, my brother and I would always say, why? What's going on? What, we, why is everything always so secretive? Everything, we were always told, you can't talk about this. Don't talk about that. And the answer was always, well, when you're older, I'll tell you. And then when I was 23, my mom and a longtime family friend named Stan Sears met me in a motel room halfway between where I was living and my mom was living. And they sat me down and told me that the reason for all our strange behavior and disappearances was that we'd been on the run from the mafia and that my dad was involved in organized crime. So, uh, you know, and it seemed like a very far-fetched idea, you know, why us? And there was um, quite a complex explanation for that that had to do with the fact that Stan Sears, who was a United Church minister and a psychologist, did a lot of uh, counseling for an organization that dealt with family members of alcoholics and that he had counseled somebody who was involved in organized crime in the Vancouver waterfront and that that was where it began, that he came to the attention of the mob and then a variety of things came together that sort of connected my mother in with that. So a very complex story. It was still very hard to believe, but I did believe it for some years. The very first time that your family picked up and moved, how old were you? So that was the summer that I turned 10. So your brother's even younger, and you said it was your mom, your brother, and and you, and that your father was somehow involved. Was he concerned that you were fleeing from him? How did he react to all of this? Yeah, well, my parents were divorced, and my dad was alcoholic, and there was a lot of uh, legal conflict about his access to us. So the courts at some point had decided that it wasn't safe for us to be with him. So there were issues around that. You know, he he was the kind of dad that, you know, back in the day, dads weren't as involved in parenting. And I think he was the kind of dad that was more interested in older kids and didn't quite not know what to do with the younger kids. So I, I know that he was concerned at some point, but he didn't really come looking for us for quite a while. So your mom and your brother and you and the family minister, when you were 10 years old, abruptly left in the middle of the night and took off 
you were running. I mean, they told you you were running. This wasn't like a planned move, I assume. No, what happened was, and so it was uh, the minister, Stan Sears, and his wife. So we were family friends, and we often went camping together, two families together. And so that's how it started. We went on a camping trip cross-country, and when we arrived at our destination, that's when my brother and I were told, we won't be going home and you can't tell anybody. Well, did they change your names or anything? I mean, it, it seems so cloak and dagger. Yes. No, uh, names weren't changed. And, you know, I think I often think about how connected the world is today that I can find anybody online. Right, right. But in those days, it wasn't so. And nothing was computerized. So I guess there were not the same ways to trace people. And that probably helped. But what year are we talking here? So we're talking about the mid-1970s. And, uh, you know, there were no cell phones. There was no internet. It was a very different world. So here you are, you're 10 years old, and you're, you're starting over. You're starting a new life. You thought you were going camping, but you left most of your stuff at your old place, and, and now you've started anew. What was that like? Did life go on as normal for a while? I mean, I, I imagine this was very shocking, but did things just settle in? I mean, a lot of things are shocking to kids, you know? It was our normal in some strange way. Um, it became our normal. And we became used to this, you know, don't talk about what our family is doing or where we're going or what's going on. I mean, we always thought it was strange. We always tried to say, you know, what's going on with our weird family? But yeah, it just became kind of the thing that you would just sort of shrug and go, oh, their, their mom goes again. In other respects, we had a very stable home. I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say. But you know, my mom had a beautiful Sunday dinner on the table every Sunday. It was sacrosanct. You didn't miss Sunday dinner. She played catch with my brother in the backyard after dinner every evening when he was trying out for the baseball team. We were up early before school to do drills for our math. You know, so there was a lot of stability and support. And my brother and I have talked a lot about this and said there was never a moment that we didn't feel loved and cared about. And I think that that's very protective for kids. So even in the midst of all of this chaos that, you know, with these moves and other bizarre things going on, there was some uh, consistency and some sense of stability around being cared about. And how long did this new life last before you moved again? And, and what was that move like? Was it in the middle of the night? Did you go no. camping again? Yeah, no. So this time <laughs> I was 13. So it had only, we only stayed a few years. And my brother was 11. Uh, my mom said, okay, I'm, we're going to move again. And I'm sorry that I, that uh, the way that happened last time. And I won't, you know, do that to you again, but it's a secret. You can't tell. And so she was going to sell the house that we were living in. And we just weren't allowed to talk about where we were going. And so the house finally sold and Stan and Sybil Sears, his wife had already moved away a few months earlier and we were going to join them, this time at the other end of the country. So we'd gone from coast to coast now. <laughs> and that, I have to say that that was the most difficult move for me by, by far. I was a 13-year-old. I, I had great friends. I loved my school. It just felt like it had become a good place for me. And then just to sort of get ripped away from that, I found very, very hard. And I went to a new place that was a smaller community. It was a smaller town. And in fact, in the neighborhood that we moved to, Nobody could remember anybody moving into the neighborhood. It was, and none of the kids my age could remember anybody ever moving in. It was just, you know, one of those more small town places. So it was tough. 
And the way that you make friends is by sharing details of your personal life. And this was expressly prohibited. So now all the kids at your new school are like, hey, where are you from? What are you doing here? And you're like, Shh. yeah. what was that like? Oh, that was a huge issue for me because this was a town. It was a had a pulp mill. It you know, it didn't really have a lot of things to recommend it. At least the people who lived there didn't think that. And, you know, I kind of agreed with them. <laughs> and so people would say, well, why would you ever move here? And I thought, yeah, I, I wouldn't have if it had been my choice, but you couldn't say that. And I said to my mother, what am I supposed to say when they say, well, why would you ever move here? And she said, just tell them, you know, that we wanted to live by the ocean again which just sounded like such a lame thing to say as a 13-year-old, well, we wanted that to live by the ocean. It was very, it was hard. And yes, having a secret that you're keeping is like putting a wall between you and everybody around you. And I didn't really understand that until really I stopped keeping that secret. And suddenly I felt this huge relief and I could allow people to really know me. And so I was, my relationships improved dramatically as a result. We'll be right back after we hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. So eventually you become an adult. Do you go off to, to university? Do you go off to... What happens to, to adult Pauline? So yes, I went off to university, uh, you know, got my own place. I became a reporter. And so I was a new, very young reporter. At the time I got this phone call from my mom. Hey, I know that you've been very frustrated about all the secretiveness in our lives and so on. It's time to tell you. So that's what was going. I was just about to graduate from university. I'd been working part-time for a newspaper as a reporter, and I was about to start full-time. Uh, and that's when the call came, and I learned this crazy story. And here you are. You're in a motel. Mm. Your mom is there. Stan is there. Yes. And the two of them together tell you about the danger, the mob, the running, and just the whole dramatic story. Yeah. What's the first thing that went through your mind well, the first thing was this can't be true. And, but why would these two people who are the, he was, Stan was like a dad to me. He was wonderful to us as kids because uh, our dad was never around. And so it's like, this cannot be true, but these are two wonderful people who really care about us. They're respected in the community. They have responsible jobs. Like why would they make this up? So it was just mind blowing to me. And then they started saying, hey, do you remember the time that this happened? Do you remember the time that happened? And they started sort of putting the, these puzzle pieces together, convincing me that this was true. And, you know, you can, well, it, 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 it was somewhat convincing. I mean, I was still struggling with it. But ultimately, I decided if I can't believe these two people who have been, never been anything but trustworthy and supportive in my life, then who could I ever believe? So I guess I decided to believe it, despite the fact I really was struggling. My second thought was, if this is true, maybe I should go to Australia and try to get lost. If it is true, you're potentially still in danger. But if it's not true, 
your family lied to you for half of your childhood. Yes. So your your choices are not great. Yes. Yes. And one of the themes that sort of runs throughout your book is that, you know, your your mom was not a bad person. You love your mother very much. Stan was not a bad guy. You you looked up to him and respected him. And there's no I'm I'm gonna ruin the ending for everybody. That's okay. They they were not fleeing from crime. The the ending of this is not that they robbed a bank and were trying to outrun law enforcement. There there was none of those things. They were good people who broke no laws, who did nothing wrong, but they had this belief that although not true, impacted you very greatly. Yes, that's right. And you're trying to put this together. So you're stuck between a rock and a hard place on what to believe, but eventually you start trying to put this together and prove definitively about whether or not you're in danger or about whether or not your mom is wrong. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, it just became harder and harder to continue the belief in this. And, you know, part of it was that my mother, that Stan had gone inside. So he had essentially disappeared into a secretive uh, world uh, that was kind of like a um, a protective custody situation. But anyway, it's a very complex world and it, it was a big part of the story. Uh, and then my mother had decided she was going to go inside. And the big surprise was, by the way, Stan and I have been in love for years. We've never done anything about it, but Sybil has decided not to go inside. We want to be together. And I'm just, you know, my head is spinning. And eventually I reached the point that I just had to know. I just had to know. And so I kind of did a sting where, I mean, the problem with a secretive thing is it's very hard to prove something is true or not true because every time you say, well, what about this? Well, that's a secret. So there's no way to prove or disprove a secret. So I, um, I pretended my house had been broken into and I called my mother at a time. So Stan used to come out to visit her from inside. And, And at a time I knew he was visiting her, I called her and said, my house has been broken into. What should I do? And she said, I'll call you right back. I'm going to talk to our friend. And of course, you you talk that way because your phone is probably bugged, right? I hang up and I wait for her to call me back. And it was just excruciating. And then she called and she said, yes. He says that two people have been picked up outside your home. They broke in. They were looking for certain things. They'd been following you. They had photographs of you. So, you know, all this crazy stuff. And in that moment... I knew none of it was true because there hadn't been a break-in. So, oh, it was just like having the rug pulled out from under you. And so eventually I confronted them and they were very upset, mostly because they were afraid that if I didn't believe the story, I would not take precautions to protect myself. And so it began a time that, you know, we, we still all loved each other very much. I still loved my mom. I don't know. I was struggling more with, with Stan, but, um, but it, you know, we were looking at each other from across this abyss of this story that they believed deeply and I could not any longer believe at all. Now, in that moment, right before you did the sting, were, were you still open to the idea that it might be true? As soon as the sting was over, you were 100% positive that everything yeah. was was a lie. Where were you the moments before you incorporated the sting? Yeah, I think I'd been creeping up the spectrum towards dis- disbelief for a long time. And by that time, I guess I was probably about 90% sure it wasn't true. But I had to know because of everything that was at stake. And for me to say definitively, you're not telling the truth to me, it was, you know, an understanding that I was 
going to do terrible damage to some of the closest relationships in my life, my mom in particular. And you did. So after the sting, you you sat down with your mom and you looked at her and you said, Mom, there was no break in. You told her the whole story. You know this is untrue. What happened then? Uh, well, she she was very upset and, you know, how could I have done that? And now I, you know, I couldn't be part of the inside group of insiders. You know, it's either you're with us or against us kind of thing, right? And now I might be in danger and so on. And I just said, well, there is no particular danger. And then I confronted Stan. We went back to where he was and confronted him together. And he was very sad. His reaction was that he was very sad because now I was no longer part of this circle. And I, I had the sense, and, and this has been borne out, that, you know, this was always Stan's story. Uh, he was the, you know, there were letters that came from the what we called the weird world, like the inside, from people who had been involved in organized crime and arrested. You know, I would receive letters from these people, uh, some of whom were supposedly family members of mine who'd been involved in, or like on my dad's side, you know. And so, you know, they all, all this stuff always came through Stan. He was the arbiter of all information and all contact and so on. And so I knew this was his story. And I guess my mother just sort of loved and had such regard for him that she just adopted his story. She couldn't believe that he would ever lie. And these letters were fake. Were they were they written by Stan, made by Stan? I mean, just... They had to have been. Yeah. And, and how he had the time, there were hundreds of them. Oh, wow. And how he ever had the time to do that, I don't, I can't imagine. The, the whole thing is, there's still some real mysteries around the story. That is incredible. So... Where are they now? Did the rift heal? Did you find a way to continue on? How did Stan react? What happened to you and your family after all of this? Well, my brother and I got together and talked about, you know, how could we essentially rescue our mom from this situation? And and he went to the police uh, and the police said, she's an adult. No, nobody's being hurt. Nothing we can do. And so we just kept on keeping on. And, you know, I struggled. My mom and I struggled a lot to maintain any kind of a relationship. Then I got married and had kids. And and so we just had this relationship where we agreed to disagree and not to talk about any of that stuff. And if she raised it, I just shut it down. I'm not talking about that. I don't believe that. And she continued to worry about me and my brother and would we be okay. And then uh, she got very sick. She'd had cancer twice. And she had a recurrence of cancer. And she came to live with me for the last nine months of her life. And, um, I, you know, we were, we were never able to resolve this between us. But what we were able to do was come to a kind of peace where I know you believe that, I don't believe that, but I really love you. <laughs> and, and, you know, she was incredibly grateful to be living with me when she was sick and, and dying. And so, you know, there was some grace there for us, um, not res resolution, but some grace. From the time that you confronted your mother until the time that she passed away, how, how long of a period of time was that? So from the time, you know, of that initial confrontation until the time she died would have been almost 20 years. 
And so for those 20 years, you did find a way to stay in your mom's life. And what kind of a grandmother was your mom? I mean, your children had a, 20 years, a long time. Your children had a relationship with their grandma. What was that like? Yeah. You know, she was always a very loving person and she was thrilled to have grandchildren. And they were all very close. Things kind of changed because Stan died. And so then the whole kind of story went underground. And there were only a couple of times that she said things that made me know that she still believed. But it was important to me that she not be talking about that stuff to my kids. So we were clear about that. Um, and outside of that, she, you know, she loved my kids and they really loved her. I'm, I'm really grateful they got to know her. From the time of the you know, the sting operation to the time that Stan passed away. How long was that? O only a few years, uh, maybe four or five years. So so your mother outlived Stan by 15 years. So did your mom and Stan's marriage end in divorce? Well, they never got together, really. Uh, you know, they wanted to be together. They wanted to go inside and be together in protective custody. Uh, but that never happened. And so, you know, she would see him on these visits and he would phone her and so on. Yeah. Uh, so the way she found out that he had died was that she got a letter from his wife. So he had never, you know, he was still in his primary marriage uh, at the time he died. This is absolutely incredible. And it's all chronicled in this book, Run, Hide, Repeat, A Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood. and. From a personal level, you had to recall all of this. What was that like for you to relive all of this in writing the book? You know what? It was a very hard time. But I, I think you just reach a certain age. And I had spent you know, a long time just thinking, okay, forget about this. This was a terrible thing that happened, but forget about it. Put it behind you. Move on. Focus on your family and your career and so on. And that's what I did for a long time. But then I think at some point you just have to stop and shake your head and say, what the heck was that? What happened there? And so, yeah, I began to think about it. And then I began to write, at it, write about it as a means of trying to sort it out for myself. And knowing that someday I would want to tell my kids this in a way that wouldn't make them hate their grandmother, who they loved so much. I wanted to be able to tell them about this in a very nuanced way within a context. And so that's why I started writing. And actually, it was while I was writing, I was doing research, thinking, so what could have been going on with Stan? I was a health reporter for the National Broadcaster in Canada for a while. And so I, you know, I read a lot of medical journals. And so, you know, I was looking for information about, you know, he, he didn't show any, he wasn't schizophrenic. He didn't have any of those other symptoms you associate with major mental illness. What was going on? And it was while I was doing that, uh, that I made a big discovery which was became the impetus for me to share this story more widely. I mean, initially it was just for my family, but then I, when I made this discovery, I just thought nobody has heard of this before and I need to share it because it essentially had such an impact on my life and my brother's life. Other people should know. And, and what was the discovery? Because I, I think to the average person listening to this story, they're like, oh, Stan was a con artist and your mother yeah. must have given him a lot of money. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's where I'm, I'm sitting here right now thinking that's gotta be it. And I've read the book. So, and I, I still want to believe that, but, yeah. but what did you learn? Well, so first of all, no, he never, my mother never gave him money. In fact, he often helped support her family. <laughs> so, um, what I discovered was an article by a, a professor, a psychiatrist at Harvard writing about something called delusional disorder. And 
he described it as something that, at least in the literature, is extremely rare. And in fact, you know, I called him up and said, okay, can I, can I talk to you about this? I, I mean, as a reporter, I was used to calling people up and interviewing them. So I said, can I talk to you about this? And so we had a, a very long conversation where I described what had happened. And he was fascinated, of course. And so, you know, he said during that, you know, most doctors will never see a case of this because these people appear completely normal. They don't think there's anything wrong with themselves. And so they don't go looking for help. They don't turn up as, you know, an, an issue in society unless they have, you know, there's some subtypes of delusional disorder that occasionally you hear about. Uh, but with the kind that Stan had, persecutory delusional disorder, uh, where you believe that somebody's coming after you, somebody's trying to harm you, somebody's hunting you down, that that rarely comes to anybody's attention because they keep the secret, right? Right. For their safety. You know, he was able to have a completely normal life in a very public and responsible job. Retired. People loved him. People come to, when I do a book reading, people come and they cry. And they tell me what a wonderful man he was. And they just, how could this have happened, you know? So it's a very bizarre condition. It really, really is. What did you hope people would take away from this? I think there are several things. One is that children can be so vulnerable. And I often think about, you know, the teachers and the adults in our lives. And, you know, did anybody raise concerns when a couple of kids just kind of disappear from school and after school activities and the neighborhood and so on? Again, I don't know that this could happen today just because of how connected we all are. But, but I just, I wanted to say, you know, you never know what's going on in somebody's life and, and kids there needs to be ways of protecting kids. Uh, so that's one. But, you know, on the other spectrum, I think there is a remarkable story about, you know, everybody always says to me, how did you survive this? Well, it's a resilience thing, you know, and resilience isn't either you got it or you don't. Resilience is something that you can develop in your life. And I believe that my brother and I had the resilience to get through all of this because of how well loved we are. And I know it's paradoxical. So a parent who puts you in jeopardy, but at the same time, who gives you the resources and the support to become a resilient person. It's a crazy thing, but that uh, that's what I believe. Yeah. And the, I guess the other thing is, I really wish people would pay more attention to delusional disorder. I wish somebody would try to do more research on it. I've heard from people all over the world who've said to me, oh, I never knew what was wrong with my son, my aunt, my father, my husband, you know, that must be it. So I, I doubt that it's really as rare as the medical literature would suggest. Where can we find you and where can we find the book? You know, it, the book has been out for almost two years now. So at, at one point it was available around most bookstores in uh, North America. But uh, if it's not, Amazon's a good spot. Uh, I have a website, paulinedakin.com. Uh, with links to places that you can buy it. And I really appreciate your interest. Thank you so much, Pauline. I, I just, I really appreciate having you on the show. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Wherever you grab this podcast, if you can give us as many stars as humanly possible and use your words, tell other people what you liked about it or hey, what you didn't. But we like fans more. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime anywhere simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych central we will see everybody next week you've been listening to the psych central podcast 
Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely. (music) 